Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week we celebrate space science on the 50th anniversary of the day Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Our regular guests, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, and my colleague Andrew Jack, are with me. Hello, Diana. Hello. And hello, Andrew. Hello, Val. You're just back from a week in Senegal, finding out about the battle against malaria there. But we'll talk about that later in the show. Now, I want to welcome John Zarnecki, who is one of Britain's top space scientists. He's on the line from his base at the Open University. Hello, John. Hello, Clive. Now, you yourself were inspired to go into space science by Yuri Gagarin, and I believe you actually encountered the first cosmonaut on his triumphal visit to London in 1961. Tell us about that. You're absolutely right. It was, I suppose, a matter of being in the right place at the right time. I was at school at the time in North London, near to Highgate Cemetery. Highgate Cemetery is where Karl Marx is buried. And in those days, every visiting Russian dignitary, of course, had to pay homage at, uh, at the grave of Karl Marx. So when Gagarin came to London in July 1961, in fact, school, I think, was cancelled for the afternoon. It was such a big event. And uh, most of my friends, you know, went off to play cricket in the park or something like that. But a small group of us went along. And I can remember standing by Karl Marx's grave with a few hundred people, two or three policemen, and then Gagarin and his entourage came along. And I, I remember being slightly shocked because I'd assumed that because he'd you know, done such a stupendous thing that he'd have been a giant of a man. In fact, as we know, he was rather small could hardly believe that he'd been in space for a hundred minutes. It was staggering to believe it still smacked of science fiction. I suppose that was my eureka moment. I was hooked and, and, you know, I wanted to do something in space. Did you want to be an astronaut or cosmonaut? I think I did, and I have to admit, and and this is perhaps a claim to fame, I'm a three times failed astronaut. I applied on three separate occasions and failed three times. I've spent my career designing and building instruments that go into space to make measurements. Do you think we're right, not we, the British, because we haven't spent anything on it, but do you think we, the world, is right to have persevered with manned space flight? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it's completely inevitable that we go into space. I think it's part of what defines us as human beings, you know, the desire to explore, to explore ourselves and with machines as well. I frankly think it's a bit short-sighted that we in, in this country haven't played a leading part. Diana, space has obviously played a big role in inspiring people like John over the last 50 years to go into different forms of science. Do you think it still has that pull today? I think it does. I mean, there are a lot of research shows that 
astronomy is the inspirational science for many kids at a young age particularly. But I think the lovely thing about being 50 years on is it's not just manned space flight or the first of these things. It's actually the huge body of knowledge that we've gained around space exploration. But, John, if we had put $100 billion into space science, unmanned missions, rather than into the International Station, we would have learned even more, would we not? And we've had fantastic robotic spacecraft landing on umpteen moons of Jupiter and Saturn beside Titan, which we did land on. Of course, we could have done a lot with that money in going to all sorts of exotic places in our solar system. But but actually, I, I don't agree with some of my scientific colleagues who say that humans in space and the space station is a waste of money. As I said, I think it's inevitable that we as humans go into space And the space station, well, if you were to do it again, you might do it differently, but it's partly still a product of the Cold War era. It it was conceived 25 years ago. And I think we've built up an enormous body of experience, of technical know-how, which will be absolutely invaluable when we, for example, go to the moon and live on the moon. And of course, when we go to Mars, which is technically going to be pretty challenging. And some of that experience from space station will stand us in good stead. How long do you think it'll be before we live on the moon and go to Mars? Well, those are interesting questions, because I think that technically, there's nothing really fundamental to stop us from doing this now. So it's mostly about political will and resources. Some people say, and I think there's, there's something in this, that with the emergence of China especially, and also India, as serious spacefaring nations, this is going to provide the next impetus, if you like, a new and slightly different sort of space race. So I, I do think, actually, that the involvement of these emerging space nations is probably going to at least partly drive the next surge of of space exploration. Can I go back to your first point though John where you said that actually seeing a cosmonaut in the flesh was one of the inspirational aspects. I do think it is the human experience rather than the data and things that scientists gather by having unmanned flight that is the inspirational factor. It isn't just the body of knowledge. Do you agree? Well, I, I do, and you might find it strange because I'm, I'm somebody who's you know spent my whole career building instruments to go. But yes, I agree with you that, that it's the human dimension which ultimately grabs the attention of most people. And even the unmanned missions, for example, our project to go to Saturn and Titan, we recently made a documentary film about this. And actually, as much of the focus on the film was about the people involved and the human stories as the scientific and technical challenges. Andrew, I'd like to bring you in because you were FT Moscow bureau chief for a while. And space is, of course, Russia's great pride and joy in terms of science and technology achievements in the 20th century. They must be feeling very proud indeed on this 50th anniversary, mustn't they? 
I think that's right. Of course, it's melancholic to see, uh, of course, the, the sad ultimate fate of Gagarin and some of the setbacks that happened. Just remind us. Yeah. Well, he died in a plane crash. There were some suggestions that sort of ultimately depression and alcohol might have been behind it. But certainly, I think it was very difficult having achieved that extraordinary breakthrough to then live up to that reputation in, in the future. But it was very interesting to see the evolution from, of course, the Soviet Union, where, as John was saying, the space race was this very ideological Cold War battle. But then ironically, when I was there in the 90s, the Russians actually became much more commercial than NASA in the US. You know, they pioneered space tourism. A number of Americans and others who went for very large sums into space on Russian rockets, they helped salvage American astronauts or cosmonauts, as the Russians would call them, on the space station when the space shuttle had broken down. And they've provided very consistent, effective rocket technology, of course, for satellite launches as well as space exploration. So they bridged the transition, I think, quite well to a new era. John, what do you make of Russians' space skills now? There's an enormous depth of know-how and experience going back decades. But I think the problem, as far as I see it on the Russian side, is that there hasn't been more recently the investment and the drive in the new technology. And I think that will eventually come home to roost. Certainly on the, the scientific and the exploration side, the Russians had a very good history and heritage, but that's sort of been lost in recent times, though I hope it's going to be picked up. There's a very ambitious mission which is going to be launched next year to go to Mars and one of its moons, Phobos, and it's actually going to try to collect some samples and bring them back to the Earth. So that might see the re-emergence of Russia at the forefront of science and exploration. Well, I hope you're right, John. As a space enthusiast, I really do. But from space, we've got to return to Earth now and we want to have a quick discussion of malaria. Andrew, tell us what you discovered during your visit to Senegal last week about the fight against malaria. Of course, malaria is a huge and challenging infectious disease, still kills something like half a million people a year around the world and infects something like half a billion. The FT is coming out on just before World Malaria Day, uh, the 24th of April, with a special supplement on the disease and a lot of the efforts to try to tackle it, both in human and managerial and resource terms, but also with new technologies, drugs, vaccines and diagnostics. So I went to Senegal, a relatively poor country with a huge burden of malaria traditionally, but which actually has made tremendous progress over the past few years in tackling it. And I think one of the most interesting things I saw was its approach to hiring community volunteers in some of the most remote villages, many miles or hours walk from the nearest health clinic, just taking ordinary people in the community and giving them some basic skills so they can actually both diagnose with a very simple piece of kit now whether somebody has malaria and if so provide them with some very powerful and rapid drugs to effectively treat the disease. What do you think of the prospects of more and better newer drugs being developed so that these community volunteers in five or ten years time will have some better drugs to give out? Happily for malaria at the moment, in most parts of the world, with the exception of a little bit of the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia, the existing 
best drugs, and these are the ones that are used right on the ground in Senegal and many other parts of Africa now, so-called ACTs, which have this Chinese plant-derived drug called artemisinin, are incredibly effective. They give a a three-day cure, and there are efforts to at one stage to accelerate the use of that drug so it could even be given potentially in two days or even one day, giving it in more effective and easier to take combinations. But there's always that challenge of resistance ahead. And so there are now some, I think, quite exciting research projects taking place by both companies and academics and public-private partnerships to look at new post-artemisinin generations of drugs, which we'll certainly need in the next few years. John, as a space scientist, can you see any link between your work and the sort of medical research Andrew's been talking about? Yes, I can, uh, strange as it may seem. There, there, There are two things that spring to mind. There's been some interesting work recently where Earth orbiting satellites, which are, you know, looking down at the ground, are, are being used to try to map the incidence of certain diseases which are carried by, you know, airborne insects. And I'm not sure exactly which diseases we're talking about here, but the carriers of the diseases are are quite mobile. And it's possible that they're sort of spectral signatures that you can see in perhaps the light reflected from lower parts of the atmosphere that you might be able to map from space. And this would give you uh, potentially the ability to track the areas at most risk. But also some of the instrumentation that's developed for space, again, strange as it may seem, one of the instruments, for example, that went to Mars to try and detect signs of life in the atmosphere. A lot of work is being done taking these instruments to adapt them because they're very rugged, very reliable, and adapt them for medical applications in the field in Africa an instrument that's being looked at here at the Open University to do in-situ detection of tuberculosis, for example, is under test. You know, these are experimental, but we're much better now at looking at what's called translational research, that is, translating research from one area of application to a completely different one where it might, in fact, be very useful. You could certainly imagine, for example, a lot of use of geomapping, whether it's for, for example, natural disasters, hazard recovery after big earthquakes and so on, or indeed, going back to the case of Senegal, you have this race against time each year with the rainy season and efforts to try, for example, not only to plot where there might be areas of stagnant water which breed mosquitoes, but also, very practically, how you get from one village to another when you know, what was desert becomes literally lake and the only form of transport to get in medicines or bed nets to protect people against mosquitoes is by boat. So, yeah, exciting integration and translation, as he says. Absolutely. Well, as Andrew said, you'll be able to read all about the fight against malaria when the FT brings out a special report on April the 21st. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week. All that's left for me now is to thank my studio companions, Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack, and to thank John Zarnecki at the Open University. And thank you all for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.